We are continuing our study of the Reformation titled, Would You Protest? And October of this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, we've been giving attention to the central truths that were recovered at this time. Uh, But let me begin not with 500 years ago, but with right now. What is the greatest problem that we are facing today? What is the pressing issue of the day? Is it North Korea? Is it the Iran nuclear deal? Is it the immigration debate? Poverty? Or systemic racism? Hurricanes and disaster and wildfires? Or maybe what most often captures your attention is is something from your personal news feed. It's the fears and the anxieties that keep your mind racing. It's problems with your family, concern that your marriage might be falling apart. There are health issues that have certainly recently been discovered or or financial needs. What, What more than anything else needs a remedy? The greatest problem confronting you and I and all of humanity is that God has condemned every person because of sin. We have ignored God and belittled him and and given our hope and affection to the things that he has made. We are guilty and God will judge us. And he has appointed a day. There is a future appointment that no matter what is on your calendar, no matter how busy you are, you will not miss this appointment. And God will come to collect. And everybody involved in the Reformation on all sides believed this intensely. But today we we live in what uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, describes as the imminent frame of reference, imminent meaning close at hand. It's the stuff that we can see and and touch that gets our attention. That's what affects us most. And honestly, we love our distractions. You know, as, as much as we complain about busyness, we love the complexity of our lives, all the things that we need to do and all the data and the news items and the information that comes streaming into our lives. We, we can't stand to sit still and be quiet, alone in our thoughts, honest with ourselves, and facing reality and God. We're like a pedestrian who's texting while we're walking, not realizing that we're coming up on the intersection of eternity. We are moments away from getting hit. We cannot avoid it. We cannot pretend it away. God will judge sin. God will judge my sin and yours. Even though no one is discussing it on the, on the news and the talk shows 
today. The, the, the question of how you can be made right with this God could not be more relevant. And, and that was the question of Luther's life. He, he could not let it go. And he describes for us the moment that he found the answer. It was in the scriptures. He was reading Romans 1.17, which says that the, the gospel, uh, it reveals the righteousness or the justice of God. And he thought the, the word gospel, that means good news. But that's not good news. That's terrible news. We, we've committed treason against the king, and now he has shown up with his justice. The just God was inescapable for Luther. And so he writes, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place most ardently desiring to know what he meant. Importunately, meaning with almost annoying persistence. Have you ever done that? We're just so quick to move on from our Bibles. But Luther's life was changed. He, he was rescued from depression and borderline insanity. The Christian world was turned upside down because he wouldn't stop thinking about one scripture verse until he understood what it meant. Reminds me a little bit of our, our summer Bible jam and the efforts to, to meditate on God's word and to see and savor and encounter God through it. And, and he, he goes on to describe what he saw and what he encountered. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. Do you? Have you entered this paradise? Do you live in this paradise? Do you realize how delightful it is or for you has it become common and familiar as you move on to what you believe are more pressing matters what luther discovered in romans 117 is our, our topic for this morning sola fide or justification by faith alone there's going to be some overlap between last week and and this week, but to do that is to follow in Luther's footsteps. He said, every week I preach justification by faith alone because every week they forget it. And I've, I've shared that quote with you before, but I share it again just in case you forgot it, right? We, we forget the paradise. And so we're going to hear the good news again. We're going to stay with Luther in the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 4. And let me recommend that this be a passage you become familiar with, that you learn well. And we have some of our favorite verses for this in Ephesians 2 and Romans 3. I want you to add Romans 4 to that as well. Here's the connection between last week on sola gratia and this week on sola fide. If, 
if justification or being accepted by God is apart from works, if it's not something that we earn by our merit, but it's given freely as a gift, well, then the way that we receive it can't involve performance on our part. I put it another way, grace alone is why we receive justification, and faith alone is the way that we receive justifications. Let's read Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Let's pray. Lord, I think of something that Luther said when he was asked to explain the effectiveness of the Reformation. And he said, I just preached and slept I did nothing. The Word did it all. So Holy Spirit, would you come and attend to your Word and do it all this morning. Help us to see. Help us to live in the good of what you want us 
to recover in our own lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's interesting to see in this passage that connection between sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone, in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And the solas are like that. They're not just these discrete individual ideas. To affirm one is to affirm them all. They're, they're not like Jenga pieces, if you've ever played that game, where you can kind of just push it out carefully and the rest of the, the structure still remains. If, if you lose one of them, everything collapses. And it's interesting that they're actually, all five of them are in this passage. You have Sola Scriptura here, when he's asking, what should we do with Abraham's justification? How do you answer a question like that? He says in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And that settles it for the apostle Paul. That's the final appeal and authority. And then you have Solus Christus here in verse 24. We're going to look at this next week. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you have the work of Christ, then you have everything that you need. And then there's soli deo gloria. Verse 2, for Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. He, He raises this hypothetical, and then he just immediately shuts it down. It's like he can't even finish his sentence before saying, that's impossible. In other words, if Abraham was justified by something he did then he would be able to boast. But since there is no boasting before God because he will share his glory with no one else, justification, Abraham could not have been righteous by works. And you can't have soli deo gloria without sola fide and everything else. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Does, does Romans 4 teach sola fide? And we're gonna work through the passage and pay attention to what Paul argues. You you have to see it in the text. Please keep your Bible open this morning. Don't take my word for this. That's what Sola Scriptura calls us to do. And so we're going to beat on the apostles some uh, together. He's going to teach this principle from the life of Abraham, asking how did Abraham become acceptable to God? But notice the contrast that he starts with. He talks about The one who works versus the one who does not work. And and the phrases are exactly parallel, except in the second one you have that word not. And so they're opposites. And so he says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Getting a wage is not a gift. And he actually uses the word for grace right there. I mean, how how many of you, uh, when you get your paycheck, does your employer say, all right, enjoy your gift? I don't know, maybe they think they're doing you a favor, which is probably an interesting work environment, but but he says it's his due or what is owed. When you talk about working, that setting involves wages and obligation and paying what is due. But when you're not working, the imagery is Christmas vacation with presents around the tree. They're totally different scenarios. And, and, and you know this, gift giving gets polluted when you introduce obligation. I don't know if, if you've ever been in a situation where someone has 
always gotten you a gift and expects you to return the favor. And, uh, you know, maybe you're not entirely sure that, the, you know, you want to get a present for the person you knew in like third grade every year for the rest of eternity, but uh, you'd feel guilty if you didn't. But listen, we pollute the generosity of God if in any way the gift of the gospel is connected to wages. God is in no one's debt. He's the benefactor. And we're the needy. Now, what's the opposite of working? Verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes. And to believe is just the verb for the noun faith. Works and faith are mutually exclusive in this context. And so even though the phrase faith alone does not appear anywhere in this passage, that's what the Apostle Paul means here when he talks about faith. It always comes empty-handed. It brings nothing to bargain with. We don't have anything to offer except our need for the grace of God. Faith just receives. And look at the rest of the sentence. It's the heart of the passage and of the gospel itself. In verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And here's where we get what it means to be justified. You might remember last week, Pastor Keith distinguished between what he called a a medical understanding of grace and a legal understanding of grace. And and you could think of it like this. You know, you're, you're driving a car and you just run straight through a red light and crash into a Mercedes. And then you you go unconscious and you wake up in the hospital and a nurse comes in and explains to you kind of what happened and says that you have several broken bones and you experience a small concussion and you have some other issues, but you're going to be receiving great uh, medical care. And then she introduces you to somebody who runs a program that's going to get you a decent job. And, and over time, you're, you're going to be able to, to pay off you know, the, the damages and the medical expenses of the person who is driving the Mercedes. Is that good news? Well, it, it's a good start as long as you're faithful to get back on your feet But what if then your lawyer walks in, and I hate creating scenarios where a lawyer saves the day, but you just have to do this, right? (laughs) And and he hands you some paperwork, and he says, sign your name here. Before your dad passed away, he he took out an insurance policy in your name, and it's going to pay for everything. Everything is going to be covered. And that's what Paul means by justification. It's not about what you do or even about what God enables you to do. It's about what somebody else did that freely becomes yours. Now, maybe that's a helpful illustration, but is it in the text? That's what we want to see. Look at verse 5. Whom does God justify? It's the ungodly. That's the condition that they are in. That's what they have to bring. 
Nothing about them has to change first. God justifies the ungodly. He declares the ungodly to be in the right. Listen, that's stunning. In in, in fact, uh, when Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, went to, to render this verse, he was so scandalized by it that he purposely mistranslated the one who believes that God does not justify the ungodly. Human religion does not know what to do with Romans 4, 5. It is so humbling and so freeing. Martin Luther had a phrase, simul justus et peccador, at the same time, just and sinner. In other words, when, when God declares you to be in the right He does so without taking into consideration any change in you. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing changes in you when you become a Christian. You are renewed. You're cleansed. You become a new creation. You begin to live in a way that's pleasing to God. You've got new desires. Your life starts to look different. And none of it has to do with why God accepts you. Grace does empower you to obey, but our little grace-produced steps of obedience do not in any way contribute to why we have God's favor. We have God's favor because Jesus' perfect obedience is credited to us. That's the language in verse 5. It is reckoned, it's counted as Ours. It's signed over to our account. He takes the test and gets a perfect score, and then he writes our name at the top of the page. And here's why this is an amazing paradise. In the hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, the hymn writer Augustus Topoli said that when we are glorified in heaven, we will be more happy, but not more secure. I feel this. In all eternity, you will not be more acceptable to God than you are today. God could not be more for you than he is right now. No matter how more godly you get. That's just scandalous. Beautiful. The approval of God does not change for you from week to week. On your best days and on your worst days, it is not your days that are taken into account, but your Savior's. But not everyone sees justification in this way. Something called the Council of Trent was a part of the the Counter-Reformation. It was the Roman Church's response to and protest of the Reformation and the document that was produced from this says, justification itself is not only a remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of the grace and gifts whereby an unjust man becomes just. Here's my question for you. Would you protest that? 
You know, it, it, it doesn't sound that bad on first reading, especially if you're skimming it while checking Facebook. Right? Who, who's got time for these kinds of things? It seems like such splitting hairs to say that justification is about God's work for us and not his work in us, that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us and not imparted to us. Most of us can't even spell those words. It's a couple of letters difference. People died for that difference. Just because something seems small doesn't mean it's not tremendously significant. There is a world of difference between the small words yes and no. Amen, parents. You know this. There's a world of difference between small distinctions like that. If my justification is dependent on my, quote, voluntary reception of renewal, what happens in the day when that's not so voluntary? When I'm lagging behind and sin is kicking my butt, I feel like I'm losing in the fight. Is, is my acceptance before God affected? The Council of Trent says yes. And in fact, they go on to condemn anyone who thinks they can be assured of their justified state. They say, you, you can't really know whether you obtain the grace of God. After all, what if you commit mortal sin in the future? The Apostle Paul, this could not sound more different than what he has to say. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In other words, God treats him as if he's righteous even though he's not within himself. And he says, blessed or favored by God are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that last sentence is written with the strongest form of denial that you can have in the Greek language. It denies the possibility of a future event. You, you could render it, the Lord will certainly never count his sin. Apparently, you can know that. How can you get in on this? Who's the blessed person who will never have his sins held against him? In context, it's the one who believes, who just believes. The one who does not work, but believes. He comes empty-handed to the Savior who bore his guilt and robes him in his perfection. You get it all right now. And Paul's key example in this passage is Abraham. Back in verse 3, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God did not change Abraham into a righteous person because he had faith. He declared him to be in a right relationship with him when he believed God's redemptive promise. And that's before Abraham did anything good, even something little, like circumcision. Right? He was declared righteous in Genesis 15 and not circumcised until Genesis 17. And, and so Paul says in verse 10, how then was it counted to him 
Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And that's just trying to put into smooth English what Paul is saying there, but he actually doesn't use the words before and after. He uses uncircumcision and circumcision. He says that Abraham was declared to be right when he was still in a state of acrobustia, of uncircumcision. It's not just about the time frame. It's a word that was used for Gentiles. He's saying that circumcision had nothing to do whatsoever with why Abraham was declared to be righteous. It wasn't a factor at all. So verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so ordinances or sacraments like circumcision in Abraham's life or baptism in the New Testament believer's life, they do not justify us. They are a sign and a seal of a righteous status that we already have by faith alone. But the Council of Trent, after saying that no one can be justified without receiving baptism, concludes this in Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification Let him be anathema. The Council of Trent, which has never been retracted, condemns to hell the person who believes what Paul teaches in Romans 4. That is worth protesting. This is a hill to die on because this is life itself. And I want to explore what it means to live in the good of this in a moment. But first, maybe we need to answer an objection. Right? Does, do, do you really need nothing else but faith? Faith alone? Does that mean faith all by itself? Nothing else? This is, it's really important that we understand what the sola is saying and what it's not saying. It's not saying that all you need is faith, period. In fact, there will be no one showing up in heaven with just faith. This is what Hebrews 12, 14 talks about, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The implication is there will be no one staring into the holiness of the Lord in eternity who was not partially in this life and fully in the next transformed into that holiness. And these are careful distinctions we need to learn how to make. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a, a document that came out of the Reformation effort in England, in England describes it like this. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, 
yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. I've heard it illustrated like this. The, the eye is the only instrument of sight. Right? You see with your eye alone, but there's nobody seeing with just an eye, right? With an eye that is unattached from the body, an eye that's all by itself, doesn't see. It is dead. Now, it's a gruesome image, but Reformation Day is on Halloween, so it fits that context. (laughs) And in Romans 4, Paul emphasizes the nature of Abraham's faith. It wasn't some empty intellectual ascent. It didn't stand by itself. It was a personal trust in the Lord that led to a lifetime of love and loyalty to him. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, Abraham was so convinced in God's promise that not only did he hope against hope in his old age when his body was as good as dead, but he also went up the mountain and brought the child of promise with him being willing to sacrifice him, believing that God was even able to raise the dead, that God's word would always prove true. And with everything we've been reading up to this point in this passage, we know the Apostle Paul can't mean that God found Abraham's acts of courage and obedience as reasons to justify him. It's just that the the faith that receives justification is this kind of faith. It produces fruit like this in the life of the believer. It's not what James 2 calls dead or useless Faith, which isn't real faith at all. It's something else entirely. And, and, and James actually uses the example of Abraham, even quoting the exact same Old Testament verse that Paul does. And here's one of those passages that need careful, patient reading. It, it, can, it can sound like it's contradicting everything we've said. Like verse 21 of James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What do you do with that question? And then he says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. I notice what's happening here. James quotes Genesis 15, 6 and he says that scripture was fulfilled when Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac in Genesis 22. Again, the order of these events is very important. James does not say that Abraham was declared to be righteous because he offered his son. He already had that righteous status seven chapters earlier. That's exactly what James says even here. But that was 
fulfilled. His faith was completed. It came to fruition in his obedience. And it's in that sense that he was justified by works. The works proved that Abraham's faith was the real deal. They justified his profession of faith. And so James is using the word justification in a different sense than the Apostle Paul. And that's important to see when that happens, when, when different writers in the New Testament use the same words in different ways. That's what you have to pay attention to. What are they actually saying here? What, what's the argument? What's the, the context here? They're, they're teaching the same thing, but they're using their words in somewhat different ways. And Paul makes the point that the way we receive our standing before God is by faith alone. But James wants us to be clear that that faith is always attached to other things. And Martin Luther agrees. He writes, what a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. It is impossible to separate works from faith as burning and shining from fire. And so don't avoid asking yourself the question, Is there burning and shining showing up in my life? Is there affection for the Lord? Am I eager to serve? Am I striving after holiness? Am I putting sin to death? Am I serious about God's mission? But listen, we know that the burning and the shining do not produce the fire. It is the other way around. It's not that faith plus works equals justification, but that faith equals justification plus works. And getting that equation right is the difference between living in insecurity and fear and living in paradise. And so what does it look like? to really believe sola fide. It means that you don't look for validation in yourself or in anyone else, but in your Savior. You are rescued from performance in all of its forms, from feeling like you have to measure up to God's standards or people's opinions So many people, whether or not you're a Protestant, (laughs) labor under self-justification. The movie, The Chariots of Fire, about Eric Little, the runner Harold Abrahams says that when he's on the track, he's got 10 seconds to justify his existence. But Eric Little said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you feel God's pleasure? Do you rest in his approval? 
or to feel like you always have to prove yourself, always managing what you think or the perceptions of others. You're just reading into everything. You feel like you're a fake and you're afraid one day people are gonna find out. One day they're gonna see through everything to what's really inside of me. Listen, God has seen through everything and declared you to be in the right. Listen, so many things that show up in your life are insecurity masking itself. If you look underneath somebody who's constantly in conflict with others or a man who's, who's prone to, to lash out in impatience and Anger when people question him or take issue with something that he's done. Or a woman who's struggling with stress and anxiety and feeling like life is too demanding and just asks too much of you and it's just constantly exhausting. If you trace those things back to the heart, you will find somebody who's living out of the assumption, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Any sense that I might be evaluated or found wanting is either infuriating or crushing. You just can't handle the news that somebody might disapprove of you or think that you're not all that great. What rescues you out of this? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The implication there? No one. It is God who justifies. It doesn't mean that they won't try, right? The point isn't that uh, people aren't going to bring charges against you. It's that no charge will ultimately stand in God's court. All charges, whether bogus or legitimate, they are overruled. They are sent out of the courtroom. They are dropped. The judge has already ruled. The verdict from the last day has been announced ahead of time, and it declares you are in the right. There is no flaw in you, because by faith, You are in Jesus, and you get that verdict today. Which means that we don't have to fear being exposed. The worst thing that could be known about me was already screamed from Calvary's Hill. The worst gossip that you could ever find out is that I brought my nails to the cross, that my sin crucified the Lord of glory. And my only hope to be seen as right or significant is not in any of my abilities or actions or goodness, but in the perfect Savior who lived and died in my place. It is God who justifies. And thank God that he does Let me draw out two other implications from being settled and secure in Christ. And Eric, if you want to come back up, man. The first is that we stop doing penance 
and we start repenting. Repentance and faith, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. To put it looks like to respond to God and to receive his work. And one of the effects of reclaiming sola fide was the rediscovery of biblical repentance. Because for years, the word for repent had been mistranslated in the Latin as do penance. And, and, and one of the, 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 the impetus for the, the Reformation was the availability of God's word being printed, being distributed. The printing press is invented, and, and a guy named Erasmus makes the New Testament available in Greek. And so people are reading this, and they are staring at the words that God inspired. They're putting their eyes on it, and then they're realizing that's not what that means. Repentance is not about performing some religious rituals. It's a change of mind and heart that leads to a new action. And so Martin Luther began his 95 Theses on Indulgences by saying, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this was, this was intended to be a double-edged Razor. He was correcting the false understanding of penance, but he was also calling on the church to repent. And when we repent of works righteousness, we are then freed up to repent in our daily lives. Do you practice your own version of penance? When you fall into sin, rather than repenting to the Lord and just honestly dealing with your failure, you try to make up for that. You try to do something more sacrificial. Make sure that you're on your best behavior for a while. Make sure that you've at least read your Bible every day for one week. (laughs) Hoping that maybe your good actions are gonna cover up and hide away your failure. You know, some people clean their house (laughs) or they throw themselves into an exercise routine. What's that all about? It's thinking that some outward cleanliness, some sense that I can manage my life, that I'm really in control, that, that the report of my last blowing it, that's not really what determines me. I've got things under control. That that provide some sense of assurance and security as hopeless. That's just works righteousness. Repent and believe the gospel. Come again to the God who is already for you. And second, we leave the monastery and we move toward Ministry. There's this really interesting quote from Michael Reeves and Tim Chester in their book, Why the Reformation Still Matters. They say, we are freed from the burden of self-justification to serve one another in love. In the medieval system, you sought justification by retreating from the world into a monastery to spend your time in confession and religious discipline. Justification by faith meant you were free to go out into the world and spend your time serving others without always looking over your shoulder to wonder what God was thinking of you. And listen, I think there's a lot that we could draw out from that that would be 
helpful for us. But I, I think, you know, we're now more often worried about what other people are thinking of us. And I have a phrase that I use to remind myself and others about this. And it's that self-awareness is the enemy of ministry. It is so easy to be distracted by the internal noise of people's perceptions and opinions. And, And what gets crowded out by that noise is serving other people in love. For some of you, it it means you almost never contribute. You almost never speak up in a small group setting. You don't share how are you personally thinking through and wrestling with God's truth and what that's going to look like in your life. We have moments of ministry and, and you don't come forward to pray for somebody else because you're concerned about how that's going to be received. What are they going to think of you? Is that going to be effective? Maybe past efforts to step out and use your gifts weren't met with the affirmation that you were looking for. And so you don't want to take that risk again. You've concluded it's not really worth it. What you've done is it's like you've retreated into your own personal monastery. You still go to church meetings, but it's like just you and you are alone in your thoughts about whether you're enough. Others jump too eagerly at those opportunities. In fact, you enjoy them for, for the wrong reasons. They, they become a self-justifying stage. And so serving others sincerely in love is in competition with your own agenda. But many of us, we're just constantly distracted. It's not that we intentionally avoid ministry. It's just that we don't notice the opportunities that are right in front of us because we are too self-absorbed. We're we're, we're too concerned with our own lives and mental busyness. We are, as Luther put it, in curvitas in se. We are turned inward on ourselves. We are in tune with our own anxieties and what feels demanding to us, the next thing that we need to give attention to or the thing that we think that we need to perform. And there are people around us and they're walking through trials and they're hurting and, and, and they're, they're living in confusion. They lack understanding. They, they need you to notice that. They need you to get outside of yourself and just being caught up in the running to-do list of the day, which is so often driven not by our just sense of diligence and productivity. It's just driven by a sense of, well, if I don't get to these things, I might look like a failure. Is that what you've been thinking of today? It's a cultural disease. And you know what gets crowded out? ministry and care and a sense of ownership for the people that are sitting next to you right now that are in your small group that are there when you show up at the store or live in your neighborhood. Let us be freed, secure in Jesus and our standing in him to get outside of ourselves to rest in the fact that we are already affirmed in him 
and to take risks to move toward others in love. Let's stand together. When we live in the paradise, that's what leads us to invite others to join us. Are you living in it today? What does God think of you? Where does your mind go in a moment like that? There's a sense in which because of the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit, it, it should go toward ways that we are not living consistently with how he's called us to. But we need to put that in the right category. In fact, if you put it in the wrong category, you'll never confront it. You'll avoid it. You're scared about what that implies about you. But listen, it is not this week, it is not this season, it is not this year of your life that determines God's thoughts toward you. It is every year, every moment of Jesus' life where he perfectly obeyed, where the Father looked on him and said, this is my beloved son right here. I'm pleased with him. When, when the 12-year-old boy, Jesus, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What was that about? Did he need that? The Son of God has had the favor of God for all eternity. He was winning it for us. Was taking every moment, every day, every year. He's taking our lives and he wrote his name on them. And he received condemnation for that. And he took his life and he has written our name on it. So that the Father can say, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. And unless that is paradise to you, You won't move toward the things that we've read today. Faith does. Faith is active. Faith is fruitful. Faith works by love. Because faith does not have to work for the love of God. Lord, we want to commit our lives to being more happy in you We live in the paradise. Even if nothing we can do can make us more secure than we already are right now. Help us to believe, to be not the one who labors, but believes. We trust you and we now worship you for this glorious salvation you have provided for us.